Dear Father, thank you, Father, for the glory of baptism, for the testimonies that it offers. Thank you, Father, for the obedience that uh, makes it possible. Thank you, Father, for the picture you gave us in it. I just think it's such a beautiful thing, Father, that you would give us something so simple, so direct, uh, something that just communicates so clearly what it is we believe. And at the same time, Father, in your wisdom, uh, it's a step that requires something of us, as simple as it may be on the outside. For so many people, Father, it's a big step on the inside, and it's something that we wrestle with sometimes even before we agree to it. And in that, we understand the significance of it and the meaning of it. And I thank you, Lord, that you could combine something of such weighty importance with something of such simple beauty. And only you can do those things, Father. You do it all the time. You made uh, ugly, sinful people like us your children by faith. And you loved us, Father, even while we were still yet your enemy. And, Father, that's, that's just proof and evidence of who you are. As you are a God of resurrection. You are a God that makes dead things alive. And we're so thankful, Father, that you counted us to be one of your children. And you have given us your word so that we would know you and obey you. And you have called us in this particular chapter to follow after Christ in a program designed to win more hearts to you. And we thank you, Father, that you have uh, opened the door for us to be a part of something so eternally important. Don't let us treat it cavalierly, Father. Don't let us dismiss these things easily. Don't let us walk away from such an eternal work. But rather, Father, hold us close to you and guide us in it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Uh, Good news is we've reached the sixth and final point in my outline here for chapter 10. So today we're in the section I've labeled the cost of the kingdom program. And and this section runs from verse 17, actually all the way to the end of the chapter. That's an error on my part. Uh, I should have put all the way to verse 42. So that's to the end of the chapter. Now that's the good news. The bad news is we're going to do 26 verses (laughs) today. And don't worry, we're not going to be here all day. I know some of you are like, there's no way we're going to do. Yes, we are. We're going to do it in large chunks because that's the best way, I think, to approach this section. Last week we looked at section 5, as I call it, uh, part 5. This is the mindset that Jesus said we needed to take into the process of serving Him, of being in this kingdom program. When we go bring the gospel to others, we're going to go out into a world where there is an enemy and he has an advantage. Uh, Jesus called him a wolf or compared him to a wolf. So the devil, the demons, all those who work behind the scenes to disrupt our progress and to discourage our interest are out there waiting. So Jesus said, you have to be as wise as the demons, really, wise as the enemy. And you have to learn his ways. You have to get into his head in a certain sense, I guess, and anticipate what he might do against you so that you can work around those things that he brings. And at the same time, Jesus said, you have to work in harmony with the Spirit of God. That is, without sinning. So we're combining shrewdness with learning how to work in harmony with the Spirit of God without sinning. All right, that's the goal of the mindset. So Jesus' advice in that respect was designed to keep us in the game. Remember I said if we don't understand these things and we face some kind of opposition along the way, it's likely that we're going to get discouraged, we're going to get nervous, we're going to stop. Jesus wanted us to understand, look, there is a battlefield, yes. You will suffer some losses, probably. Get ready for it so that you will persevere through it. All right? But let's be honest about something. Because I said last week that when you look at the metaphor of sheep and wolves, Part of that metaphor is implying 
that you're not going to bring all the sheep home, so to speak. So there are going to be losses. Another way to say it is, the more invested we get in the kingdom program, the more we invite the enemy's wrath. So it's time tonight in this next section to consider, are you prepared for the cost of serving Christ in this program? Elsewhere, Jesus says in Luke chapter 14 that wisdom is calculating the cost of an endeavor before you enter into the work. So that's what tonight's about. It's time to pull out your calculators, so to speak, because serving the kingdom program will cost something. At the very least, it's going to take time away from other things you might enjoy in life, right? It's going to take time away from your family at times in your life, at different points in life. It's probably going to interfere with bowling night once in a while. It's probably not going to fit with you know, the routine you have in your life now. It's going to disrupt that. It's probably going to interfere with your personal finance. It's probably going to ask you to spend your money differently. I would say in the most extreme cases, it might ask you to give your life for Christ. All right? I'm not going to sugarcoat it. These are all on the table. But there's a cost. There's always a cost. So the last section of this chapter, Jesus says... To the disciples, here's the cost for participating in this program. Verse 17. He says, But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say. For it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. All right, that's our first section for tonight. And in that section, you see a series of stark warnings there, right? Spoken to his apostles. And I, I guess most interesting of all, as you look at the whole of it, notice Jesus doesn't offer them any solutions. He doesn't tell them how to avoid the trouble in the first place. You know, that's kind of odd from our point of view, because we tend to think of the purpose of a warning as a way in which we would avoid the trouble in the first place, right? That's what warnings are all about. But Jesus just says to them, no, just endure it. It's coming. Remember last week we learned from that little bit of James that I threw into our study last week, that a trial for a Christian is an opportunity for future joy in the kingdom. James says to count it as joy anytime we face a trial, because he says when you endure a trial, you gain something. What do you gain? You gain spiritual maturity. And then he says the product of that spiritual maturity, in the end, is eternal reward. And as we walk into the kingdom in a day to come and see what God has for us there, then you will see joy. So in effect, enduring a trial now is counting on joy for the future. It's adding up in the future. Certainly not happening now, though. Trials aren't fun. And the Bible never says they will be. But that's the overriding theme of this final section. If you want to get a sort of roadmap for yourself tonight on what we're going to talk about, that's it right there. The overriding theme is the Lord calls us to count the cost of serving Him, being prepared to pay it, because we know we stand to gain far more in eternity than we might put at risk now. That's the idea today. Tonight the idea is a trade-off. Are you willing to make the trade? May I submit to you that if you're not, it's because you don't understand what's in the future. 
If you're old enough to remember this analogy, don't admit it. You remember the old game show, Let's Make a Deal, Monty Hall? The, the premise in that show was really simple, right? By not telling you what you might get behind some door, the temptation is to think that it's better than what you have in your hand, burden of hand, right, versus two behind the door. And people would routinely be put in that dilemma of, do I keep what I know versus do I give it up for what I don't know? What the Bible is here to say to you is that what's coming behind door number two in the kingdom far exceeds anything that you can find in this world. So if God asks you to give up what's in your hand to get what's behind door number two, do it every time without question. You'll never regret it. That's the concept of this section we're in right here. He starts in verses 17 through 23 that I read. He starts with two warnings. Now he's speaking specifically to the apostles, the 12 men that started at the outset of this chapter. And in verses 17 and 18, you have the first warning. 21 and 22, you have the second warning. The first one he says to the apostles is, you're going to be handed over to courts, Jewish courts, where you will be judged and ultimately whipped in synagogues. Also, you'll be hauled before governors, hauled before kings. Now, obviously, he's referring to the early days of the church. I mean, this, this is the history we know. As the gospel began to take hold in Judea, you found the Jewish Pharisees initially ignoring the movement for the most part. They didn't really care. But as the movement gained momentum, well, the mood began to change among the religious leaders. They began to vigorously oppose the movement, and they started with the leaders. Their idea was if we persecute the Peters and the Jameses and the Johns, well, that will turn everyone off from this movement. No one will want to have anything to do with it. Well, that's not exactly how it went. Instead, Jesus says in verse 18 that the Lord planned this persecution as a means of bringing testimony both to those who persecuted, but ultimately to the Gentiles. You see that? That is to say, opposition to the gospel among the Jewish authorities had the effect of making a seismic shift in the population of the church in the first century. We went from a church that was almost exclusively Jewish to a church that was, by the end of the first century, almost exclusively Gentile. And that shift came in large part because the persecution of the Jewish authorities of the church in Jerusalem scattered the apostles. They moved out. They went into the diaspora, into cities in which they met many Gentiles. And as they did that, Gentiles came to faith. And next thing you know, we have the Jerusalem council because the leaders of the church are confused. They don't understand how they're supposed to take the Jewish mindset of the leadership and minister to a group of Gentiles. But they came to realize that was God's intention, obviously. He used persecution for that outcome. Notice the Lord tells the apostles, when you face these moments of persecution, don't worry about it. Don't get too upset. Don't think about how you have to prepare. Don't even worry about how you're going to handle it. Let me handle it for you. He says in verses 19 and 20, when you're standing before these authorities, whether it's a synagogue or a king, I'm going to give you instructions in the moment. I'm going to tell you what to say right then and there. The Spirit will speak to your mind. He'll give you words. And what you say is essentially what God is saying through you to those men in that moment. Elsewhere, if you go outside of this gospel to Luke, you find where Jesus in Luke goes a step further. And listen to what he says to the disciples about this same situation in Luke. In Luke 21, 12, he says, But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. Now listen to what he says next. So, make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. For I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. You don't get a, a more unworldly view than that, right? If I tell you that you have this future, 
your first thought is you got to get ready for it. You got to prepare. I got to make sure I can get myself out of hot water. I got to have good answers to all their questions. I got to try to figure out a way to escape. That's our mindset, right? Jesus says, well, you're forgetting. I put you there. (laughs) I wanted you there. So you don't need to escape. You don't need to do anything. In fact, I would rather you not prepare too much because I'm pretty sure if you prepare, you'll do it out of a selfish mindset and you'll come up with your own words instead of mine and you'll be too busy trying to backtail from all of the threat rather than stand in front of it and deal with it the way I want. So don't even prepare. I love that, right? He says, you're going to be opposed by powerful institutions. I'm doing that to bring glory to myself and to the church. And that promise was fulfilled not long after. I'm not going to read the passage for the sake of time, but I do want to point it out to you in Acts chapter 4. There's a moment in Acts chapter 4 where Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, refutes elders and leaders of Israel at a trial that's being conducted, very much like the one Jesus said they would experience. And at the end of that speech that Peter gives, under the power of the Holy Spirit, the men who see this are amazed. They say, how can men who have no professional training or background whatsoever speak with such wisdom about spiritual matters? They didn't know what to do. They were silent. They were speechless at the response that Peter gave. That's the testimony God wanted. Obviously, the Lord is continuing today to use governments, to use religious institutions of whatever kind, to oppose the gospel at times. But he does it for the same reason. He strengthens the church in that respect. In fact, I've heard it said that the church historically has always been at its strongest when persecution is at its greatest. And, of course, there's a corollary to that, right? When the church is in its safest and most comfortable, it is also its weakest. I don't think it's any shock, then, that the church in the West, that does feel a certain degree of safety and comfort, at least for now, is a fairly weak church institutionally. We just don't feel the same urgency about following, obeying, knowing Christ, because... It can fit easily into our schedule. It doesn't call upon us very much. You see, here's that issue again. When it doesn't cost much, you don't value it very much. And now, hear me right. Your faith in Christ costs an awful lot. It costs the blood of Christ. But in our personal experience, the way we perceive it, I don't know that we understand that cost anymore. Look at his second warning in verses 21 and 22. He moves from societal opposition to personal Opposition. He says, not only will governments and authorities oppose the church, but so will those who know us best, including family members, brothers, betraying brothers, parents, children, and the like. Now, as you notice, they're betraying each other unto death. Here again, this is evidence of something unique in the early church, not necessarily unique in all history, but not, uh, by the same token, it's not common. It's not something we would all experience. That's not the point here. And in fact, you notice Jesus switches from second person plural to third person in that particular verse. And he does that because he wants you to understand he's speaking in generalities there. Not even the apostles experienced these things as far as we know. The point is, eventually, sooner or later, across the ages and throughout the church, this will happen. It's one thing, though, for the world to oppose you, or a government, or a king. It's another thing, though, when your friends turn against you, isn't it? When a family member opposes you because of your faith in Jesus, that, that, that's a little different, isn't it? And that has happened many times. It has happened to many of you. It is happening today all around us. In the first century, it was common. In the Reformation time, it was common. I could name countries in the world today in which it's common that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't dare tell your family members. You don't tell anyone except those you can trust. 
Now notice verse 22, he switches back to the second person, meaning specifically you, the apostles. He says, you will be hated for your work. Now look at them for just a moment. Look at the cost those men paid for their work in serving the kingdom program. The early church fathers who write about them, and that's really our only record for the most part on these gentlemen, other than the couple that we know about in in the scriptures. But generally, we don't know what happened to most of them. But what we're told is that they all, for the most part, were martyred. And even if that's not exactly true, we know that before they died, they spent many years on the run. They were evading uh, their enemies at every turn. Paul was being harangued around the known world as he moved by Judaizers and by others who were trying to convict him of what he said. The apostles were hated literally by everyone in Judaism. If you're a Jew living in Judaistic society and you are hated by Judaism, what does that mean? It means you're hated by everyone you know. Family, friends, society, you've got no one except the church at that point. Honestly, I wouldn't wish the apostles' experience on my worst enemy, knowing what happened to most of those men. That was the cost. Now, given the cost to serve him in that day, and generally speaking, what we still see in places today, look at the consolation Jesus offers them. He says, first, to the one who endures to the end, that person shall be saved. Now, let's get something straight here, because this is clearly a place in which we can end up in some bad theology, if we're not careful. Jesus is not saying that you will receive eternal life by enduring. And we know that because that would be saying that you earn your salvation through works. And that is contrary to the whole of Scripture. We know that can't be true. So what happens when I find a statement like that where on its face it seems to say something that I know can't be true? What do I do with that? Well, it's a very simple thing. You simply understand that there must be an alternative interpretation. So I look for it. I seek for another interpretation that would fit but doesn't lead me into a corner that I can't be in that doesn't make sense scripturally well you start by looking at the greek words here and what you find is that the word translated end the one who endures to the end that word in greek is literally the word for tribute Uh, or it it also means accolade or it, it, it can describe the finishing tape at the end of a foot race that's what that word means in greek so that takes our our definition our our interpretation in a very new direction doesn't it what does the end mean now well in that context The end refers to the end of our race. And then you look at the Greek word for saved, and that word in Greek is a word that has a lot of meanings. We tend to think of it only in one sense, right? Eternal salvation. But that's not the only way the word is used in Greek. It has shades of meaning. It can mean preserved, maintained. So here's a paraphrasing of that verse that's equally valid translation. The one who endures until the end of his race will see his reward preserved. That is an equally valid way to interpret what he just said. The one who will endure in the race that God has set before him will see a saving of his reward, preserving of the reward. That's exactly the same idea we saw last week in James. When James said, count it joy when you endure a trial, knowing endurance brings reward. Now this same statement comes up later in Matthew, in Matthew 24. But that's a different context and it has a different meaning in that context. We'll look at it then. That's the first thing he says. He says, look, If you want a little consolation, a little encouragement to go out in the face of the opposition and pay the cost that I'm saying you'll pay, just remember, the one who endures this to the end will see their reward preserved, maintained. And then secondly, he says, because of opposition, verse 23, he says, just keep moving. (laughs) Don't stay in one place for too long. Go to towns, villages. He says the cities of Israel here because obviously he's speaking to these men about their day. But he even adds there, he says, they're not going to finish this process of moving around 
uh, and reach all the Jews before the Messiah returns for his kingdom. In other words, this is what he's saying. The proper response to persecution is to take your message somewhere else. The proper response to persecution is to let it have its good work to move you on. And in that way, what persecution accomplishes is the scattering of messengers to reach more people. And that's the pattern of movement that's continued on since the first century. And what he says here is, it's going to keep happening, and it's going to happen so that not even all the Jews will have been reached until the very end of this age. It's a continual process of finding people. Friends, remember we said the kingdom goes through four phases. It goes from a promise to a proposal to a program to a place. And what Jesus just said is, we don't leave the program part And get to the place part. Until that happens, you just keep talking to people. In that period, you just keep talking to people. Keep moving, keep talking, don't stop until it's a place. Till the coming of the Son of Man. His advice, again, totally different than the world's advice. How how many times have you heard this in the church? I want to show you how different this is. The world in general, and I think too often the church, will tell you that when you face difficulty... Some resistance to your work, some persecution for your faith, some challenge among others in the body or outside the body. What they tell you is you need to just find a way to stop the trial, ease the discomfort, move on. You know, don't deal with it anymore. Uh, Back off, be more tolerant, seek a compromise, uh, quit the church, take a pill, see a counselor. You know, God wants you to be happy, right? God wants you to be happy. Don't put up with that. You don't need to do that. What does Jesus say? He says, be forewarned and let's endure it together. Let's turn it to our advantage. That's what he says. Turn it to our advantage. We're learning, what we're learning here, friends, is this. The Lord's highest priority for us isn't our personal safety or our freedom from suffering. And as a result, we can't make that our goal either. Not if you want to serve the kingdom program. Not if that's part of your life. In fact, if you're going to be like Jesus in that respect, you will know suffering. In Matthew 10, 24, look at the next verse. He says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they've called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? That's a very simple principle, right? That is, a disciple is not above his teacher, A slave is not above his master. This is a basic principle of rank and authority. That's all this is. right? A person who falls under the authority of a superior can never possess more privilege or authority than their superior possesses, by definition. right? So if a disciple falls under the authority of their teacher, they can never have more authority in teaching than the teacher had. And a slave falling under the authority of a master never has more authority than their master, right? In fact, he says in verse 25, the highest goal you could have under those circumstances is merely equaling those people. That would be the the height of your goal. All right, so Jesus is your master. Jesus is your teacher. What does that say about the bar that he sets for our life? Well, what it says is, if you're going to follow in his footsteps, you cannot expect better treatment than he received. Right? End of verse 25, he says, look, if the head of the household was labeled Beelzebul, how much more the members of the household? Well, the word Beelzebul is a title, and it's a title for Satan. It means Lord of Flies, which is a great title for Satan, not one he prefers, I'm sure, but it's what we use. And chapter 3 of Hebrews says that Jesus is the head of our house, the head of the house of God, of the church. So if the head of our house was called Satan by his contemporaries, 
because he engaged in the kingdom program, what do you think is going to happen for you and I when we engage in the kingdom program? At least as much, right? Do you suppose you can preach the gospel in the same world, controlled by the same enemy that Jesus had, and you can avoid what the Lord received? Do you think that's possible? You're saying, well, I haven't had to suffer what Jesus has had to suffer. Have you done what Jesus did? You see, that's the trick, right? Put yourself in his place, do and say all that he did in the way that he said it and did it, and then let's see what comes. Jesus is not saying that we will suffer everything he experienced. Obviously, we're not going to get crucified by a Roman cross. That's unlikely. But if the Father allowed the Son to be murdered for our good, then nothing is off the table. right? Theoretically, he could do anything like that to us if he chose. So when somebody tells you that the Father's priority in our life is that we would be happy, you only have to read a little bit of Scripture to know how big of a lie that truly is. What is his priority? It's not earthly happiness. What is it? It's eternal holiness. Now, one's a means to the end of the other. You'll never be happier than when you're holy. Truly happy. Truly in a way that you don't even understand until you get there. But the proof is seen in Jesus. We are to follow him as a disciple. Hebrews 12.2 says this, You fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Now think about that statement for a second. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Doesn't that sound oxymoronic? How can you have joy set before you when you get on a cross? Well, because you're thinking about only earthly terms. There was the eternal joy of his obedience and what it would achieve for the Father's plan that necessitated the earthly suffering that brought it about. So looking ahead into eternity and knowing the joy of what was going to come from it, he would endure it in the meantime. That's your model. Despising the shame and then sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God. Pay now for joy later. It's just that simple. Count the cost. Because, friends, here's the problem if you don't count the cost. And you'll see it all the time. See it today. You've seen it throughout the history of the church. If happiness is truly our highest priority in our walk with Christ, then you should not get engaged in the kingdom program at all. You shouldn't. Because the enemy will only need to push on you a little bit, make things just a little uncomfortable, and then you will either give up or you will change the message that you're preaching. And either one will shame Christ. And if that's how your service to Christ goes, then you would be better off in eternity not to get engaged in the kingdom program. Luke 17 tells us that. When he speaks about counting the cost, the man who builds the tower halfway stops before he can finish it because he didn't count the cost. And as he got into the building, he looked at it and realized, I don't have enough money to finish this thing. Here was the problem, though. He didn't have enough money to tear it down either. He had to just stop. He had to just kind of... Stop the losses at that point. And forevermore, instead of a tower that stood as a monument to his piety or to his good name, forevermore it was a half-built tower that mocked him. And everyone who walked by it looked at it and said, oh, that was a guy who didn't have enough sense to count the cost. That's what a life lived partly for Christ looks like. It's an eternal testimony of someone who said, yeah, I'll do that, and then quit because they didn't figure out what was really involved. I don't just mean quit. I mean, did it with half-heartedness. Did it with shame and sinfulness. Did it without concern for Christ's reputation. Did it for worldly purposes. Did it for income. Instead of doing it for the kingdom. 
Jesus puts us on notice. Serve in the program. You will experience a degree of persecution and suffering. There is a cost, but it's worth it. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Remember I said a couple weeks ago, if you haven't been persecuted for your faith, guess what that means? It doesn't mean the rules changed. It means you haven't started the, the battle yet. You haven't engaged in the fight yet. You're not on the battlefield yet. Now at this point... And I know where you're feeling, because I knew how this would come out. I'm guessing right now it's going to be super hard for Jerry to sign anybody up for the next mission trip. (laughs) Jerry's back there like, stop, stop. In fact, Jerry, I think some of the people on the present mission trip are probably going to ask for a refund at this point. But we know that's not Christ's heart, right? Christ didn't go into this part of the, of the chapter, this stuff we're studying now. He didn't do this in order to dissuade us, to discourage us from getting involved in the kingdom program, right? That's not his heart. He doesn't want that truth to stop our work. And so look what he does next. He follows with two arguments for why we should persevere. That is, now he's going to give you the other half of the story. Given the cost, why is it worth it? Why should we pay it? And he's going to remind us first of God's sovereignty. Look at verse 26. He says, Therefore, do not fear them. There's nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You're more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before man, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before man, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Earlier we read Jesus saying, Beware men. But now he says, But don't fear them. Don't fear them. Fear is a sin. Did you know that? Fear is actually a sin. That is, when it is a manifestation of a lack of faith in God's power or a lack of trust in God's good purposes, fear is actually a sinful response to what we see in life. And Jesus is beginning by reminding us of that, by emphasizing God's sovereignty, asking us to think about God's role in this. You know, nothing happens in your life that isn't under God's control, period. So he says, for example, nothing is concealed that won't be known. Nothing is secret that won't be revealed. In short, what he's saying is, the truth that we've been given in the form of the kingdom message that we're supposed to go out and share, that truth, he says, will be known by all eventually. Have you ever thought about that? Everyone, every human being, will know the gospel before all is said and done. And they will all know it's true. And they will all bow their knee to Christ. Every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow. But here's the thing. If they don't do it before they die, they don't get any credit for it because it's not an act of faith. It will be self-evident. When Christ is standing before them, it won't take faith for them to acknowledge the truth of what they see. And faith is what is hoped in and not seen. So there's no credit for acknowledging the obvious which is what we're talking about. But everyone's going to know it eventually. That's the thing. You're not hiding this from someone, or you're not selecting who's going to know it. Everyone's going to know it. The only question is when are they going to know it. And Jesus says, the end of this story is already known also. Satan gets conquered. The kingdom program prevails. All opposition will cease. So in other words, what are you really afraid of in the meantime? Have you ever 
DVR'd like a, a football game or a basketball game or something where you're going to watch it later because you couldn't watch it live, but you found out the score uh, before you could watch it. Happens, right? Sometimes people don't, they, they tell you, and you, you know it now. You can't, you can't unknow it, right? But you still want to watch the game. And if you've ever done that, when you watch the game, sometimes in the middle of the game, the team you're cheering for is losing. And maybe they're losing pretty bad, and you're kind of thinking, I don't even know how they got out of this. This looks like it couldn't happen. It looks like they can't pull it out. But you know they won. Right? You know they won, but you can't see it. So how do you feel in that moment? Are you afraid? Are you nervous? You worried? What's your feeling? You're kind of looking forward to seeing how they pull this out. Your emotions are on the opposite side of normal. Your emotion is one of anticipation, excitement. This is going to be cool. I can't wait to see how they do this. I don't know how they do it, but they do it. You're in the same exact situation with the kingdom program right now. Right now. You have an enemy. He opposes you. Bad stuff's going to happen. Guess what? He loses. You know that right now. So the fact that you know that should give you some excitement. That in some days of the kingdom program, when it feels like you're in the fourth quarter and the home team is behind and there's no way to win, you don't need to get into a fear mindset about that. You don't need to shrink back from that. You need to just say, I wonder how he's going to pull this out. Now, about this time, here's what you're thinking. Well, I know Jesus wins in the end, but what I'm worried about, Steve, is what happens to me in the meantime. You know, the personal suffering that might come along. I mean, there's no guarantee about that. To which Jesus says in verse 28, you're worrying about the wrong thing. You may not have noticed this, but everyone dies. Death rate, 100%. I mean, unless you're banking on the rapture, you're going to die too. Hope I'm not you know, ruining your day by telling you this, but the point is, stop using your life to worry about your death. It's going to happen. You've been saved from it. You're not going to, that's not the end of you anyway, right? It's just a moment. I have a feeling after we all go through it and we're on the other side, we're going to be like, why did I worry so much about that? That wasn't that hard. Right? Done. I'm over it. Now here I am. It's all good. Why did I think so much about that moment? And what that moment does is it paralyzes us. It distracts us. It confuses us. It paralyzes us. Jesus is not saying, by the way, that when he used that analogy about be concerned about who can put your body and soul in hell. He's not saying you should be worried about hell, obviously. He's just making a comparison of something very obvious. That is, if you and I shrink back from being involved in the kingdom program because we worry about the personal loss that might be coming with it, the cost we might have to pay, maybe even our safety is at concern. What he's saying is you're worrying about the wrong thing. You ought to be far more concerned with the eternal consequences of not doing the kingdom program than you are about the earthly consequences of getting involved in the earth, the kingdom program. Put those two concerns in their right priority. Trust your earthly circumstances to God. He has a plan. He's intimately familiar with you. He's numbered the hairs on your head. God is so involved in this world, he says, that if a sparrow dies, it dies only on the sovereignty of God and his choice that it did so. He says it doesn't happen apart from the Father. How many birds die on a given day? Every single one of them died in God's timing and purpose, as it was intended to happen. And he says you're worth a lot more to God. So if you die in the kingdom program, guess what? That was ordained. That was what it was supposed to happen. That was how God was going to use you. It's a good thing in the end. I understand that talking about death doesn't make anybody happy. But what I'm trying to tell you is in the eternal view of things, it's not the end-all be-all. Knowing that you are far more valuable to Christ, you focus then on eternal things, whatever may come on earth. 
And let me give you the wrap-up that Jesus gives us here. This long section is actually a summary of everything we've just studied. And it gives you the eternal purpose of the kingdom program. Let's read 32 through 42. And I'm going to summarize the three things he gives us here as our eternal perspective. Verse 32, he says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever, in the name of a disciple, gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. You know, earlier he said there'll be brother against brother, parent against brother. Look how he says it now. I set brother against brother. These are things that are purposeful. But let's start this in three sections here. First, he says, have eyes for eternity in recognizing the awesome privilege that we've been given by God to participate in this program. That's when he says, those who confess me before my father will be confessed by my father. Here's what he's saying. You and I have been given by God this message to proclaim. And here's what this message can do. When someone hears it and believes it and confesses in it, do you know what just happened? That man or woman just got added to the eternal realm of the kingdom. In our presence, by our participation in the kingdom, we just got to see that happen. Friends, Jesus says if that's going on, you know that God is doing it, right? Because as we're seeing them confess, God is confessing them, so to speak. It's your little moment in that scene where you can say to yourself, God's working through me right now. He orchestrated this for my benefit through my mouth, through my hands, and I got to be a small piece of it just right now. He did that for me. So I could see it. Is there anything more noble in your life? Do you do anything in life that's that important otherwise? Is there anything more meaningful? Is there anything that's going to last longer? Anything more awesome than that? I mean, I'm sure we all do many things we enjoy and think are worthwhile, but friends... Could you have more impact on life and eternity than that? I don't think so. When heaven and earth pass away, we'll still talk about how the word of God brought us to faith. We just share a message and we wait to see a response. Depending on that response, eternal things change. That's an encouragement, right? That's the first attitude we need to take. This is important work. Secondly, having eyes for eternity recognizes that this message will invite conflict because God intends it. But don't be afraid of the conflict. We don't see it as a problem we have to solve. We work in wise and innocent ways, navigating a minefield because we know that's what God has appointed us to do. But if you love harmony with the world more than you love working for Christ, he says you're not worthy to work with him. This is not a statement of salvation. This is not a statement of whether you'll be saved or not. This is talking to to disciples Unbelievers can't serve him in any case, right? This is talking to people who have the potential to serve him, which are believers. And he's saying a disciple in this context then would be someone who follows him in the work. And he's saying, if you don't value the work, you don't value serving him, you don't value what this is all about, you value the world instead, well then you're really not in the program. 
Verse 39, he says, The one who foolishly tries to hold on to the world in these respects, they will lose that in the end. While the one who lets those things go in the service of Christ will gain it all. I mean, it's a simple trade-off, right? You can't take it with you. That's really what he's saying. You can't take it with you. Build the greatest things on earth. You know, increase your wealth as much as you can. Have the most toys, as they say. And it all stays here. Let some of that out of your hands. Put some of that aside. Don't run after so much of it. Use some of that time, talent, and treasure for other things, for kingdom things, and you'll be saving things that you can't lose. And then finally, eyes for eternity knows that your Father cares for you, and He is going to shepherd and care for your needs, even in the face of trial. Verse 40, He says, As someone receives your message... They are receiving Christ, and if they are receiving Christ, they are receiving the Father. Here's what he's saying. He's saying you're not going out there alone. You're not doing this on your own. The Father is working through you. And from time to time, you will experience success. I bet if I took a poll right now of how many people have ever had the chance to lead someone else to faith and seen that in the moment, I bet it wouldn't be that many hands. I bet there'd be some, but I would suspect for many of us, that's something we've yet to experience. Don't die and miss the chance to experience that moment, please. For your own sake. It's nothing you'll ever see quite the same again. Preach the gospel often enough, and you will be rewarded by seeing that outcome, Christ says. And when you see that response, he says, you can know the Father was right there working with you in that moment. In fact, he says, the Lord honors all his workers equally. Notice this. He says, he honors us according to the same standard. When someone receives a prophet or a messenger or a righteous man, or we could say a godly Christian... When that that person is receiving us in the name of Jesus, it says that person will be rewarded. Here's what he's saying. The reward is not salvation. That's by grace alone. What he's saying is their faith in the shared gospel is going to bring them an opportunity for an equal share of the inheritance. Everyone who is saved gets an equal opportunity at what Christ is offering to the whole body. Which is a way of saying this. It's like you've got a winning lottery ticket in your pocket and you're walking around offering it to people. Eternal reward opportunities, basically. Would you like to share in the inheritance of the kingdom? If you actually had a winning lottery ticket, I'm pretty sure you'd be offering it to everyone you could possibly find. If, in other words, if you could give it away, you'd know the value of it. And the final verse, he adds, that even the smallest act of kindness done in the name of the kingdom, like a child getting a cup of cold water from you, even that gives opportunity for the Lord to reward you. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, and this could not be clearer today, The cost of the program is worldly attachments, worldly gain, safety, security, comfort. To some degree, God will determine what that is. That's your cost opportunity. That's what you might have to give up. What do you have to do to gain reward? You might just have to give a child water. And he'll reward people equally based on their faithfulness to the service, not on your achievements in the work. You're not supposed to be Billy Graham. You're just supposed to be obedient. Something as small and as meaningless as that counts if it's what God's asked you to do. So building eternal reward is not a work of strength, of wisdom, of ability. It's just a work of yielding and obedience and a sacrificing of things that get in the way. So what do you have to lose? Paul says this in Ephesians 2.5, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, We were made alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. 
and raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, so that in the ages to come, He might show us the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There is something yet to be shown to us in grace when we get there. And He's asking us to be thinking about it now so that we're available to serve Him in a program that builds that kingdom even before we get there. That's what this whole chapter has been about. That's what this whole thing is about. But you cannot take something of value from God without appreciating the cost that He might ask for it. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, first, Father, we thank You for the awesome opportunity that it is to preach the gospel, to share the word with others, to be a light in darkness, to be counted... Uh, worthy enough for the privilege that that involves. And we thank you, Father, for those of us who have seen life come out of darkness and a spirit brought to an awareness of you in our presence, Father. We, we know the joy of that. We know how encouraging that is, and we thank you for the privilege of it. For those who have yet to see it, Father, I pray that that would be something you would show them soon as they obey to encourage them along that walk. And then secondly, Father, we know that there is a cost in this world to following after our master and our teacher. For as he was persecuted, so will we. Uh, Father, we ask that you would prepare us for that. Not that we all suffer equally or that we would necessarily pay the price he did. We pray, Father, that we wouldn't have to do that. But we also understand, Father, that uh, we don't want to take what you've given us lightly. And we want to value it as it should be valued. And if that means paying a greater cost, Father, then here we are. Take us. Use us. But whatever may come, Father, whatever things you may ask of us and whatever rewards may be offered for us or to us, Father, we do ask that more than anything we could just live a life that pleases you here and glorify you along the way. We leave all of the, the costs and the rewards to you. But obedience, Father, is not optional, and we know that. So we ask, Lord, you would guide us in that. Send us away from here today, Father, perhaps encouraged, perhaps reflecting. But most of all, Father, with courage and a desire to obey. And bring us back, Father, with stories and testimonies of what service can do in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.